Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that looks at how different communities prepared for and responded to natural hazards such as floods, wildfires, hurricanes, and more. How have planners in these communities promoted resilience in their hazard mitigation to disaster recovery planning? We'll find out on this episode of Resilience Roundtable, brought to you in conjunction with the American Planning Association's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. I'm your host, Rich Roths. I'm a part-time senior hazard planner for Burton Planning Service of Columbus, Ohio. I'm also a proud member of the American Planning Association's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. Pete, uh, welcome to the Resilience Roundtable. And I understand you've got a long and varied experience in planning, particularly uh, county planning and disaster planning. Can you give us an overview of your background? Sure. It's great to be here today. Uh, I started as a professional planner in the early 1980s, working for the county of Santa Cruz in uh, Central California. And uh, down there, we had all different kinds of geologic hazards from landslides to flooding. And I was the planning manager there in 1989 when uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake hit and and the epicenter was there in Santa Cruz County. In the mid-1990s, I came to Sonoma County, uh, which is uh, in the wine country, just a little bit north of uh, San Francisco Bay in Northern California. And I was the planning director there until 2013. And of course, here in Sonoma, we have uh, floods on a pretty regular basis. In fact, we're having a major flood event today as we're talking, uh, as well as the um, catastrophic wildfires in 2017. So I've been a planner for over 35 years. And since I retired from my uh, planning director job at the county of Sonoma, I've been an independent planning consultant, as well as the uh, immediate past president of the California chapter of APA. Can you go into some of your background in Santa Cruz County, including giving us a picture of uh, the county for those that aren't familiar with it? Sure. Um, Santa Cruz County is at the north end of the Monterey Bay uh, in in central California. It is actually, uh, with the exception of San Francisco, it is the smallest county in California in terms of uh, square miles. And most of the population of the county is located within three, four miles of the coast of their Monterey Bay. But it also it has a mountain range running through it. The San Andreas Fault uh, runs through the uh, eastern edge of uh, Santa Cruz County. So there are a lot of steep slopes there. Uh, as a result of that, uh, we have major rivers that flood uh, in uh, Santa Cruz County. Uh, and of course, because the San Andreas Fault is right there, we do experience earthquakes from time to time, including the uh, 7.0 magnitude Loma Prieta earthquake that um, struck in October of 1989. The epicenter was up in the mountains of Santa Cruz County, and it did a tremendous amount of damage to rural homes out in that area, as well as in the city of Santa Cruz itself, and then, of course, up in the greater Bay Area, too. Can you describe some of the floods and mudslides you've dealt, you dealt with in Santa Cruz County? Sure. When I first started with Santa Cruz County, it was shortly after the what is referred to as the Love Creek landslide there in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And this was a debris flow landslide that occurred after uh, around a foot of rain fell in about 24 hours. And this debris flow moved at 35, 40 miles an hour down the mountain and buried a dozen or so homes and killed about a dozen people um, uh, as they slept. And so that really woke the county up with respect to the need to evaluate geologic hazards much more closely for any future development. And so we eventually uh, hired a staff geologist that would perform those evaluations and look both at the geology and the uh, the, the geotechnical engineering aspects of new building sites. And so a few years later, 
when the Loma Prieta earthquake struck in 1989, one of the things that was very clear to us in looking at the damage up in the mountain areas is that the homes that had had a thorough geologic evaluation done and had engineering recommendations made about foundations and structures and where there was very clear follow-through on the implementation of those recommendations in the construction process, those homes fared much, much better in the earthquake than homes that uh, were built before then or or were not built to those um, same standards. And so we got a real uh, clear lesson in uh, one approach that really does help reduce the damage in uh, geologically unstable areas, including landslides and earthquakes. What type of construction are the houses in the area? They're um, almost all wood frame construction. And over the last, say, 30 years, and this is true here in Sonoma County as well, um, there have been uh, a lot more attention placed on the engineering of the foundation. Because in an earthquake, it's really the foundation that is... um, just about the most important part of the building. And of course, the secondarily, you want to make sure that your building is securely attached to the foundation. So depending on the site conditions, you would have drilled piers that went down anywhere from 8 feet to uh, 25 feet and um, uh, engineered great beams uh, that help provide stability to the foundation in uh, areas where it was unstable. In uh, areas uh, more urban, do you have issues with unreinforced masonry? Yes, and uh, California has a uh, statute that requires, at minimum, all unreinforced masonry buildings to include notice to anybody who comes into those buildings that it is uh, a hazard. And over the years, different cities and counties have uh, taken different approaches to remediating that hazard. So there are a few cities and counties in California, I think San Francisco is one of them, that actually mandates the retrofit of unreinforced masonry buildings independent of any proposal to improve the building. So people actually just have to make that investment in those buildings. Um, others, it's a more of a, a encouragement and notification process. So there are, um, at this point, I think, way fewer unreinforced masonry buildings in California than there have been in the past, but there are definitely still a few of them around. Okay, you've uh, mentioned a couple types of mitigation actions. Uh, One, obviously, is looking at the uh, construction of residential structures, and we've talked about unreinforced masonry. Are there any other types of mitigation actions uh, which you've pursued that stand out? Um, there is a lot that you can do for earthquake hazards in particular. There's a lot that you can do to um, strengthen existing buildings, and uh, particularly buildings that were built, let's say, 50 years ago or more, may have uh, cripple walls. In other words, uh, uh, little short stem walls between the foundation and finished floor of the building. And if those are just made with studs and then maybe some siding on the outside of the building, those don't have very much uh, shear strength uh, in an earthquake in particular. But you can uh, go into those buildings and you can put plywood on the uh, inside of those cripple walls that really helps stabilize the the underpinning of the building um, in that kind of a situation. Let's turn to your experience as the planning director in Sonoma County. Sure. Sonoma County is uh, about an hour north of San Francisco. It's part of the uh, world-class wine country that includes Napa County and Sonoma County uh, in Northern California. We border the Pacific Ocean on the west side of our county. The county is about a million acres, and we have uh, valleys and mountain ranges. Uh, The San Andreas Fault cuts across the edge of the county out uh, at the ocean side, but we also have a couple of major earthquake faults uh, in the interior of the county. The county is mostly rural and agricultural, but the population is about 575,000 now, most of whom live in a uh, the, the Santa Rosa Plain, which is kind of the central 
already mentioned, obviously, the San Andreas Fault. And uh, I assume you've got wildfire issues. Any other major hazards in Sonoma County? Uh, flood hazards would be the other big one. Um, so for a time, I'm not sure that this is uh, still true, the lower Russian River had the highest rate of repetitive flood loss west of the Mississippi. So this is an area that is at near the bottom of a very, very large watershed uh, that, that in atmospheric river type rainfall events like we've had here the last couple of days where it has rained continuously now for about 48 hours, uh, the river rises very rapidly. And so you have these small kind of semi-rural communities along the lower part of the Russian River that were originally developed as um, summer homes back in the 19th century. But now, of course, as with, with just about every place in California, it's it's a permanent home, year-round home for people. And so um, the flood level, just to give you some numbers, the, the uh, flood elevation for the town of Guerneville, in the lower part of the Russian River, is 32 feet. Uh, the river is expected to crest a little over 41 feet uh, later tonight. And so that is definitely up in the major flood uh, category. It's going to be the biggest flood that we've had in uh, the lower Russian River since 1997, uh, which I remember very well, <laughs> having spent many hours in our emergency operations center uh, in that particular event. So um, the the towns of Guerneville and Monte Rio and Rio Nido uh, down there are going to be pretty seriously impacted uh, by this flood event. I would assume from your description then that FEMA has uh, targeted these areas for flood mitigation funds. Uh, can you go into that a little yes. bit? Yes, yeah. So over the last 20 years in particular, the county has obtained uh, several grants for elevating uh, homes that are in the lower Russian River area. And so these homes have historically flooded repeatedly over the years, and uh, these funds help pay to raise the lowest finished floor elevation of these buildings to at least one foot above the uh, base flood elevation, which is the 100-year flood uh, out here. And so um, we get flood events of various magnitudes on a pretty regular basis in the lower Russian River, and this elevation program has really reduced the amount of damage to these structures. Floods are still a problem because, uh, particularly for the people who are living there, because if you're in a home that is elevated and you've got floodwaters all around you, you you can't leave your home unless you've got a, a boat, and that's the situation that uh, we have out there in, in Guerneville this morning. But it really has, uh, if you get people out, and so there, there was a large uh, evacuation effort that started late yesterday afternoon in the lower Russian River. I think they evacuated somewhere around 4,000 people uh, from uh, the, the, that area as of this morning. And so once you get those people out, then you've really got a much safer situation, much less damage to, to uh, structures. But as I said, it's still going to be a mess because you're going to have cars that are inundated and, and uh, ruined as a result, and uh, people can't get in and out. And the town itself essentially uh, shuts down while the, the flood is happening. For, for those houses that have been elevated, uh, based on the expected high watermark you expressed earlier, will they still be above the uh, flood elevation? That's a really good question. Uh, they should be above the flood elevation for uh, what we are, but the storm that we're looking at right now. But um, of course, one of the things that we are seeing as a result of climate change is is a flashier uh, weather pattern, meaning that um, we're getting more intense storms rather than rain that is metered out over the course of the year. We're getting these very intense uh, atmospheric river events where there is literally a an atmospheric river of moisture that ends up being aimed at a relatively uh, narrow band of uh, of land. And this particular atmospheric le uh, river was aimed directly at Sonoma County and points just a little bit north of that. So it's really filling up 
watershed and those events over the years, I'm sure will end up producing floods that exceed the 100-year flood elevation. Um, you know, we've already seen floods uh, in the eastern part of the country that people have talked about being 500-year floods or maybe even more. Well, uh, clearly, if you're only uh, elevated to the 100-year flood elevation, um, you have a 500-year flood, it's not going to protect you. Do you have many buyouts there or because of the need for housing, is that a tool not being used? I have not seen uh, buyouts used. Um, we have in our flood hazard mapping, I don't know if you're familiar with the various designations that FEMA has for their flood mapping, but we have a floodway, uh, which is the area of, of kind of highest volume and highest velocity flows, and we don't allow uh, any development in those areas. And so even rebuilding a home that has been damaged, you can't do in the floodway. And uh, while those haven't been buyouts per se, there has been uh, pre-existing development that is no longer there um, and is no longer subject to that hazard. Why don't we turn to uh, wildfires? I understand you have uh, experience with those in Sonoma County. I do have a very personal experience with wildfire here in uh, Sonoma County. Um, our county suffered catastrophic wildfires in October of 2017. And uh, I use the plural there because uh, it was uh, not just a single fire. We actually ended up having three major fires uh, going at the same time in our county. And uh, as a result of one of those fires, my family lost our home. Uh, that we're now rebuilding, and um, it has been a a catastrophe of, of huge magnitude in our entire community. So we get in California, this part of California, uh, what are called red flag warnings from time to time, and most of these come in the fall when the weather is dry and we tend to get uh, very high winds that originate in the um, high desert areas of the Great Basin. So they're very warm and very strong. They come from the Northeast. And so in uh, our early October 2017, we had actually seen a couple of red flag warnings. And on the night of October 8th, um, we went to bed and, you know, there was a mild wind blowing. It didn't seem like uh, it was really going to be much of a problem. So uh, we went to sleep and I woke up a couple hours later smelling smoke very, very strongly. At that point, the wind was howling. It was probably 40 or 50 miles an hour where we are, which is kind of on the top of a, of a ridge. And um, most worrisome, I could uh, look out the bedroom window and I could see the glow of fire off to the northeast and it was uh, I, I'm going to guess a mile and a half or two miles away from us uh, at that point and I called our local fire department to find out more we have a, a rural fire department that has a station about a mile away from our house and they said yes we know there's a fire over in Kenwood which is another nearby community uh, but we don't think it's going to get up your way you can go back to bed so um, I wasn't really comforted by that and uh, just watched the fire for just a few minutes, for 10, maybe 15 minutes. And you could see over that time that it was growing very, very rapidly and getting closer. And so uh, my wife was up and activated at that point. So we got our son out of bed. He's 10 years old, uh, 10 years old now. He was nine at the time. Uh, we were able to catch one of our two dogs. The dogs were both kind of freaked out. One of them ran outside, and we never were able to catch her. And loaded a few things in our cars and uh, decided to head to my wife's mother's home. Uh, she lived in a mobile home in a mobile home park called Journey's End, which is down in the city of Santa Rosa. And at the time, we had no idea of the magnitude of, of what was going on, both in Sonoma and Napa counties. And so I could see this fairly contained uh, indication of fire maybe a mile or so away from us at this point. But I had no idea that there was a whole separate fire that was moving into Santa Rosa from the northeast. I had no idea that there was a, an even larger fire burning on the east side of uh, Napa County. And so all of the firefighting resources were 
units had already been activated and, and firefighters were running all over the place. So by the time we got down uh, into uh, Santa Rosa, it probably takes 20, 25 minutes to, uh, to drive down there, down to my mother-in-law's house, it was extremely smoky down there. She has respiratory issues, so we knew that we couldn't stay there. And we're listening to the radio and hearing that the fire had crossed the six-lane freeway of, of uh, Highway 101, which runs through uh, the city of Santa Rosa, runs north and south through Sonoma County, which is is just shocking that, it, that the fire could have crossed that. It didn't cross my mind that the area where we were, it's mobile home park, could be involved in the fire, but we just, we got grandma out and, and put her in the car and went over to my daughter's house. It lives over on the other side of town. Well, the mobile home park ended up being largely destroyed by the fire. The fire leaped Highway 101, uh, burned down several commercial businesses, the Kmart store and several restaurants uh, were burned down and then moved into a uh, really truly urban style subdivision called Coffee Park uh, here in the northern part of the city of Santa Rosa and it ended up destroying over 1,400 homes there. It was, uh, the, the pictures afterwards really looked like the pictures at, at Hiroshima after the atomic bomb. Everything was just leveled. And in addition to that, um, over on the east side of the highway, uh, the, the hillside residential area known as Fountain Grove here in Sonoma County, uh, lost almost 1,500 homes up there. Uh, subdivisions up a little bit north in the unincorporated area lost thousands of homes. And uh, by the time uh, the fires were finally put out about three weeks later, over 6,000 homes were lost in the North Bay area. So this was including Sonoma County, Napa County, and Mendocino County. Uh, and the vast majority of these homes, uh, 5,300 homes, were lost in Sonoma County. So including ours, uh, we live in a neighborhood of about 130 homes and 92 of those uh, burned. So it was pretty devastating for uh, our neighborhood. And a catastrophe of this magnitude really affects the entire community. Whether you were directly involved or not, whether your home burned or you had to evacuate. So we had probably at one point around 100,000 people evacuated from their homes uh, in Sonoma County and people just living wherever they could. The, the county and FEMA did their best to stand up shelters, but when you've got that many people who need a place to stay, you had kind of a massive flow of people moving uh, out of the county as well. And like I said, it took about three weeks for the fires to be uh, completely put out and, and over those three weeks, different areas would be opened back up so that people could reoccupy. There were a couple of areas that had to be evacuated more than once uh, because people were let back in and then the fire flares up again in a, in a particular area and they had to leave again. So that was the, the really the magnitude of it. It's still very difficult for me to comprehend. So. I live kind of, you know, geographically in the middle of Sonoma County. If you look at it from a north and south uh, perspective, I can drive an hour south and about half hour, 45 minutes north, and I'm still within the burn area of this fire. So just to me, that is really gives an idea of the magnitude of this. So uh, in addition to losing 5,300 homes, there were just in Sonoma County, uh, 110,000 acres uh, that were burned, so the impact on the natural landscape was uh, very serious, uh, as well as the, the impact on the built environment and on people. Uh, and then I think it's really important to acknowledge that at the time, in 2017, the fire that came into the northern part of uh, Santa Rosa was called the Tubbs Fire actually started in the town of Calistoga in Napa County and came into Sonoma County. That was, at the time, the most destructive fire in terms of number of structures and number of lives lost uh, in California history. So there were something like 40, 43 people, I think, lost their lives in Sonoma County in that, in that particular fire. And 
and 5,300 homes uh, destroyed. Only 13 months later, November of 2018, uh, California uh, had what is known as the campfire up in Northern California in Butte County in the town of Paradise that wiped out that record and became the new most destructive fire in California history, destroying almost 15,000 homes and killing 85 people. So it wasn't like our disaster got eclipsed by just a little bit. It was dramatically eclipsed by the, the fire up there in Butte County. Uh, one question about your house. Was it in a subdivision? Was it uh, wildland? It, it was in a, uh, a subdivision that was developed in the late 1960s, uh, about 130 homes on uh, parcels that range from a little over an acre to maybe three acres. Uh, it was definitely in the wildland urban interface uh, area. Um, our state agency that, that manages fire hazards is called Cal Fire. Uh, rated our area as high or moderate fire hazard areas. Our particular home was in a moderate fire hazard area. Other parts of our subdivision where the, the uh, slopes are a little bit steeper were in the high fire hazard area. Let's move on then to your personal mitigation. I know the National Fire Protection Association has a lot of recommendations on rebuilding, such as uh, metal roofs, covering vents, with the screening so that the embers don't get in it. What are you considering, Pete, as part of your personal mitigation for your house? Well, we're well along with our rebuild process right now, and one of the things that we're doing is following the wildland urban interface building standards that were adopted in California in uh, 2008. And so that requires uh, ignition-resistant and combustion-resistant siding so our, our siding and all those exposed surfaces, including the, uh, the uh, soffits under the eaves there, are all non-combustible material. Uh, Rich, you mentioned vents, and we've actually designed our home so, so that we don't have any attic vents on the roof at all. Um, we do have foundation vents and uh, it, it, vents under our eaves, and those are all a much smaller mesh that prevents embers from getting uh, entrained up into those uh, areas in windy conditions. Uh, we have to use tempered glass windows because they have a higher temperature uh, ratings than um, uh, standard glass. And of course, a, a combustion resistant roof. Um, we're not using a metal roof, it's not required per se, but we do have a what's called a class A uh, um, asphalt uh, shingle roof on our house. And in addition, I, I think that one of the things that I have learned since the fires is really the importance of how you uh, care for your property and what kind of landscaping you have around your, your house. We didn't have uh, trees. Uh, right around our house, but um, clearly, you know, like most homeowners, I had a pile of scrap wood under my deck. I probably had dry leaves in my rain gutters, uh, and the vents on our house, which was built in 1969, uh, were not uh, small enough to prevent embers from getting sucked in. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how our house caught on fire. It wasn't like a raging conflagration came up to the house and and uh, consumed it, I'm sure that an ember got in some place, uh, you know, any number of places, and uh, that's what caused our, our home to burn. And so as we move forward with rebuild, we're uh, going to pay extra attention to defensible space around the house. I'm not going to have any landscaping within five, five feet of the house. Uh, and uh, we'll do a much better job of keeping the place tidied up in terms of uh, opportunities for ignition around the house. How long until you expect to be able to move back in? Uh, it's going to be at least another three months, so three to five months, I would say. We'll be in the summer, I'm sure. Sometime. Some of my neighbors are uh, pursuing uh, what I still call alternative building materials. And so they're either using structural concrete insulated panels or uh, some other um, construction technique that even further reduces the flame. 
flammability of the building. So one of my neighbors down the street is using these structural concrete insulated panels that uh, essentially have styrofoam on the outside and you pour concrete in the middle and then you finish uh, the uh, the styrofoam sides with uh, stucco on the outside and plaster on the inside. And uh, these are, are even safer in terms of fire resistant. We looked into that uh, and I, I was very interested in that um, approach right after the fire. I was hoping to do something like that, but the, the additional cost of it just ended up being uh, prohibitive for us. And, and that kind of highlights one of the recovery issues that is uh, uh, very prominent here in our county, and I'm sure it's going to be the case up there in Northern California as well, which is that with the cost of construction uh, the way it is here right now, almost everybody is underinsured. And so really having to watch kind of every dime as you move forward to uh, rebuild what you had before. That seems to be a common issue, the underinsurance uh, actually around the country with multiple uh, types of disasters. Right. Uh, as a consultant, can you go into how you've taken the experiences you've dealt with and how they may have changed your recommendations to communities? Yes, that's a great question. And uh, going through a catastrophe like this, both on the personal level, losing my own home, as well as watching what our community as a whole has gone through and really the amount of suffering that we've uh, endured on a community scale as a result of this has uh, definitely changed my perspective on it. So before this disaster, when you looked at wildfire hazard planning efforts in my part of California, and I'm talking about my experience in Santa Cruz County as well as up here in Sonoma County as well, there was a focus on fighting the hazard, if you will. In other words, when you place homes in an area with high fire hazards or the wildland urban interface, the perspective has been uh, make sure that you have enough access. Make sure that you have a good water supply. Make sure that you're implementing defensible space, which means reducing the fuel load in close proximity to buildings. Um, put fire sprinklers in your house uh, and whatnot. Go ahead and build in these areas because we can uh, protect you. What has changed for me is that I think there are now some areas of our state, of our county, that are really not an appropriate place to um, in be increasing residential density. In other words, these are areas where no matter what you do, when you're faced with a wind-driven firestorm, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that at all, when you're facing a wind-driven firestorm, there's very little that you can do to uh, protect yourselves. You can build a house to the wildland urban interface building standards, and you may still lose that home in a firestorm type of event like that, because they're not fireproof. It's very difficult, very expensive to build a truly fireproof house. And so I think that the focus going forward needs to be on uh, really limiting residential density in these high fire hazard areas, and then secondly, approaching uh, defensible space from a community perspective rather than an individual property owner perspective. And then thirdly, just like we have done with flood mitigation and elevating structures, we have to find ways to um, do some retrofitting of existing structures that are in these areas so that buildings are better able to withstand um, uh, wildfires that we know are going to come in the future. We know they're going to come more frequently uh, as a result of, of climate change. Um, and it, it, the, these fires have really emphasized to me that natural disaster in, in terms of a wildfire is really a little bit of an oxymoron because when you look at what is driving these fires, what's driving the propagation of them, the speed of them, yes, it's the wind and it's at least partly the vegetation, but it's the buildings that provide the fuel for these fires. Um, so areas like Coffee Park, 
Plaza, which was a conventional tract subdivision, nice flat level ground, not a fire hazard area at all. It was one building catching on fire, catching the next building on fire, catching the next building on fire. Uh, that really is the problem. And you saw that um, very clearly with these uh, fires in, back in November up in Northern California, where you look at the town of Paradise that is now essentially destroyed, uh, lost 90% of the houses in their, in their community. If you look at the photographs of that place, the trees and whatnot are still mostly there. It was the buildings that caught on fire. And so we need to stop making it worse as planners and as decision makers. And uh, we need to look at really reducing uh, residential density in these areas. And then, as I said, providing community level, community scale, uh, defensible space uh, programs. So when you think about defensible space as a wildfire mitigation strategy, it is very effective, can be very effective, but it's only as effective as kind of the weakest link in that chain. And it's highly dependent on individual property owners, not just to create the defensible space in the, in, to begin with, but to maintain that defensible space over time. So you can build a home that's got perfect defensible space. You've got fuel loads reduced close to the house and within, say, 300 feet. But five years go by, 10 years go by, depending on what kind of vegetation you've got, and it's going to become overgrown again in no time, and somebody's got to keep maintaining that. And that, I think, is where defensible space as a community wildfire protection strategy needs to rely on more than just the uh, initiatives of individual property owners. So this is an area where communities themselves really need to step up and figure out a way to fund that and ensure the defensible space gets maintained over the long term. And then, as I said, the uh, retrofit of existing structures that are in high fire hazard areas with non-combustible siding, replacing vents uh, with, with safer attic vents and foundation vents and things like that are all strategies that can help uh, reduce that, that hazard in, uh, in the future. But first and foremost, we got to stop making it worse. We cannot assume that every place that uh, would be a desirable place to live is going to be a safe place to live. You were past chair of the uh, California chapter of APA. Can you discuss what the chapter is doing to assist communities with hazard mitigation? After the catastrophe here in Sonoma County, I was really heartened to have planners from up and down the state and even from across the country reach out to me and say, how can we help? How, how can we help your community uh, recover? And I, I, I was very heartened by this, but there turned out to be not as much of a role for planners in the recovery aspect of it. Because in disaster recovery, the focus becomes very quickly on putting things back the way they were. Yeah, they're going to be safer because they're built to, to modern building codes. But there was really, um, in our particular situation, there was not an interest in replanning some of these areas. I mean, there are things that certainly could, when you get a whole subdivision wiped out, you you do have an opportunity, at least theoretically, to look at that and um, say, well, geez, couldn't we do some things different? But when you're dealing with thousands, literally thousands of, of individual property owners, it's very difficult to um, tell folks, let's put a pause on your recovery and rebuilding efforts while we figure out the best way to do this. So there was not a huge role for um, planners in that immediate post-disaster world. And I think we're finding the same thing up in uh, the town of Paradise in, in Butte County after the campfire up there. But there are opportunities that come up. So one of the the, um, the main contract work that I have right now is working with our local nonprofit affordable housing developer to use the site where this mobile home park was that my mother-in-law lived in uh, prior 
fire and redevelop that site with multifamily housing uh, to the tune of, you know, maybe three times the number of housing units that were there uh, in the form of mobile homes before the fire. And, you know, there's a lot of ins and outs around that, but it does, it does create uh, sites that present an opportunity to help address what in our county has been a uh, chronic housing shortage for a number of years and can help make the community much more resilient. You know, we had in Sonoma County before the fires, our, our rental vacancy rate was around 1%, which is, is nothing and means really that there's, there's full occupancy of rental units. And when you have that kind of situation in your community, you have no housing resilience at all. And so when you get an event like we had that displaces 5,300 households, um, you, you don't have many places for these people to go. Are they going to have any affordable units? Yes. Uh, we're looking to replace these uh, mobile homes with a one-to-one affordable housing component to this. So there were 161 uh, senior affordable mobile homes in this park before the fire. We're going to create at least that number of senior affordable apartments with the development project. A lot of communities have hazard mitigation plans because those are required to get hazard mitigation funds after a disaster. Did any of the communities that you've discussed have disaster recovery plans? So, um, yes, uh, Sonoma County has a local hazard mitigation plan uh, in place, and it uh, was adopted. In fact, the last update was adopted about six months before the wildfires here, and it included a chapter on wildfire that pretty well identified the hazard. Um, And those hazards, those areas of vulnerability to wildfire have been known for really a long time. It's not not that difficult to figure out in our area. Um, What I don't think that that hazard mitigation plan envisioned, nor did anybody envision, is that all of those areas of vulnerability that we identified throughout our county would catch on fire at once. Kind of similar, although a different disaster with uh, Hurricane uh, Katrina and New Orleans, where the basically the whole area flooded. Right. Yeah. You know. So you would look at um, wildfire mitigation plans and, and hazard assessments, and they would talk about things like, well, you know, we know up in the Fountain Grove area that this is an area where the residential development is right at the wildland-urban interface, and you could have a fire come into that area, and it could destroy 20 or 25 homes. Or, you know, down in the Kenwood Valley, you could have a fire down there that would destroy a few dozen homes. Well, that is a much easier scale of uh, calamity to plan for. You can plan for response and recovery. You you know, it's it's a big enough bite to uh, actually chew on and and make something out of. But when all of those areas go off at once, all of those plans really become a little bit useless. And so I had conversations with fire chiefs after the fire who would tell me, you know, we train all the time. We exercise our plans all of the time. And we try to plan for what we think is going to be the worst case scenario. And Virtually without exception, the fire chiefs say what happened exceeded our worst case scenario imagination by a factor of 10. And um, and so they were completely overwhelmed. So when you look at the county's disaster mitigation plans as it relates to firefighting, it talked about the things that I just talked about. Uh, uh, keeping residential density low in high fire hazard areas. Uh, providing defensible space, doing retrofits, uh, and things like that. And I would say that with the exception of the rural density thing, which Sonoma County has had a pretty good handle on for uh, several decades now, there hasn't been the funding commitment to actually provide the fuel reduction and defensible space and the retrofitting of um, existing structures in these 
affected areas. That probably goes into an additional question. Is there adequate state and federal assistance post-disaster? I think in the immediate aftermath of the, of the disaster and recovery, I think in large part there was adequate assistance. Um, so one of the things that you have to grapple with after a, a catastrophe of this magnitude is debris cleanup. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you're familiar with that in some of the hurricane scenarios, but in Sonoma and Napa and Mendocino counties, we had the biggest debris cleanup in California since the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And um, here in our part of the, of the county, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers came in to manage that debris cleanup uh, operation. And there's a fair amount of dissatisfaction with certain aspects of it, but it was there quickly and it was done pretty effectively and it was taken care of in a pretty short period of time. And that is so critical to getting the community back on a recovery path because there really is not much you can do until you get that debris cleaned up. Now, I think there's also a separate question of whether or not the state and federal governments are going to be willing to fund hazard mitigation programs into the future. Um, California state government, I think, is certainly uh, saying the right things about that, but we haven't seen yet exactly what those programs are going to include and how those funds are uh, going to be applied in the state. So it's, it's a little bit of an open question. Are there any resources that you'd like our listeners to know about? Well, here in uh, California, we have uh, fire-safe communities, so we have uh, Fire-Safe Sonoma uh, is a, an organization here locally that's kind of quasi-governmental that helps um, uh, individual neighborhoods and communities um, harden their communities, if you will, and protect their communities in wildfire situations. And so uh, I think that your listeners can look at that. I would have folks look at the SonomaCountyRecovers.org website. And this website was stood up by the city of Santa Rosa and the county of Sonoma right after the wildfires so that residents who were displaced or had their homes destroyed had a single place to go to get information about recovery and about support services uh, and whatnot um, after uh, the fires, and so I think that was really important, and it's remarkable from my perspective because local governments in California sometimes don't work together all that well, and so it was really heartening to see both the city of Santa Rosa and the county of Sonoma that are distinct political entities work together to, to come up with a single uh, site for this. Another thing that I think is very important to mention in this context is the psychological impact that a catastrophe like this uh, has on a community. And so, you know, people kind of talk in a somewhat glib way about PTSD and related syndromes that people have, and it's real. I, I, I can tell you that it's real. It's real in my family. It's real for so many people that I know who are strong, professional, educated people and uh, who have lost their homes or in some cases lost loved ones. And it is a, a community scale phenomenon, it is an individual phenomenon where people need lots of help. And so one of the things that the state did provide um, since the fires was to provide counseling services for people. And so people who need counseling and want to avail themselves of that service have been able to do it. And it's been tremendously helpful. It's not something we think about necessarily a lot as planners, but in terms of healing at a community scale, um, it, it is really important. And I think that need is going to go on for um, really quite a long time, probably longer than the funding will allow the services to go on. But uh, it's very important thing to keep in mind when you're planning for disaster recovery. I think we're, we've discovered in the last 10 to 20 years uh, of the need for counseling, of the need for information. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, if you could consider the, uh, you know, here in California, the, the, the 
disaster potential that we have here that we have not yet seen in modern times, like a you know a major earthquake on the San Andreas Fault in Southern California, or a, you know another 500-year flood or something like that in California's Central Valley. It could get will eventually get worse. So one book that I read last year that um, I think should be required reading for everybody who's in the uh, disaster response and mitigation field is called The Big Ones by Dr. Lucy Jones. The subtitle is How Natural Disasters Have Shaped Us and What We Can Do About Them. And uh, Dr. Jones is a seismologist and who has worked extensively in California and mainly Southern California for a lot of years. But her book uh, chronicles great natural disasters uh, in history, starting literally with the uh, volcanic eruption that destroyed Pompeii in uh, the year 79, and talks about how the communities, the, the governance structures, the culture responded to those uh, disasters over centuries and what we could learn from that. It's been uh, really an eye-opening book for me. Where can we find you online? So I don't really have much of an online presence, quite frankly. I mean, I do have a Twitter account, but I don't post things very often, at PW Parkinson. I, I would refer people to the APA California website. Um, uh, again, I was, I'm the immediate past president of the California chapter. I'm really proud of the work that, that we do here. We have uh, about 6,000 members here in California. So um, if your listeners want to take a look at apacalifornia.org, there's uh, lots of interesting things about uh, planning in California there. But I don't have a personal website or any of that kind of stuff. I'm a little low profile these days. <laughs> I understand. Thank you, Pete, for joining us today and giving your insights to multiple hazards. You bet. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For resources on hazard mitigation and disaster recovery, visit planning.org resilience. To hear past episodes of the APA podcast, visit planning.org slash podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast series? Send it to podcast at planning.org.